0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Heavenly Father God, as we, as we look now at this passage of Scripture and start this new study today, I pray for your guidance and your wisdom. I pray you'll descend on this service and just uh, do something great and mighty as we look at your word. I pray, Father, if there are those who need to understand the gospel and how it applies to their life, I pray they'll understand it today. And I pray if there are others to whom this, uh, this topic uh, that we're going to start looking at today applies, I pray, Father, that you'll do a work there. And uh, just apply this as only you can. Speak to us, Father, today. I pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I pray for your guidance and your understanding of this passage. I pray, Lord, that you'd keep me from saying anything I ought not to. And I pray, Father, you'll help me to say those things that I should. And just use this time. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning I want to begin a new series, Lord willing, on 1 Corinthians. I've been thinking and praying about where we would go next, and I think this is where the Lord would have us to go. So we're going to start now, and who knows how long it'll take us to get to the end of it, but we're going to look at 1 Corinthians for a while. You know, during the past five years, we have primarily followed the approach of looking at a book of the Bible and trying to go from beginning to end not necessarily verse by verse, maybe section by section, or paragraph by paragraph, or just however the Lord led. But we have tried to concentrate on that method of teaching. Uh, we've looked at a few. We looked at John, we looked at First Timothy, we looked at Nehemiah, we looked at Acts. Uh, that might be it. I don't know if we did any others. But that's our primary way that we try to look at the Word of God and try to teach. And we've also done some topical things, which are sometimes helpful. I think my favorite series that we've ever studied here together was when we looked at the parables of Jesus. I just, I truly enjoyed that study. And then recently we've been doing some topical things as we dug deeper into things like our statement of faith and various doctrinal things. So uh, there's different ways of doing it, but, but we try normally to just look at a book of the Bible, start at the beginning and work our way through uh, and just take it as God gave it. And so that's what we're going to do. Again, we're going to start now in First Corinthians and Corinthians. And uh, just uh, see where the Lord takes us as we go through it.
1: And I would remind
0: you, by the way, that Sunday morning worship service is not the only source of teaching that we have here. Uh, We also have some wonderful adult electives, and since I'm not teaching FBC 101, I've been sneaking around and and, uh, jumping in on those classes and enjoying the teaching, and if you're not participating in that, you're missing out. Uh, I think you're teaching in uh, the Johns, right? Are you in 3rd John now? You're in Jude now? Okay, and so, you know, you got an opportunity there to hear that, and... Uh, Ecclesiastes this morning was good, and Survey of the Bible, and Phil's class, I mean, it's just all kinds of opportunities. And we have the men's Bible study that's in Hebrews, and the ladies' Bible study that's in Genesis. And so, all these are opportunities uh, for you to jump in and participate, and I would encourage you to do so. But let's start in 1 Corinthians, and let's just think about this book a little bit. And as is always the case when we start a new study, we have to introduce things, and we have to give some some kind of some background information. And so let's talk about this book for just a, a little bit here today. The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He wrote it approximately 56 AD. He wrote it from, we believe, Ephesus. It is one of at least three letters that he wrote to the church at Corinth. We have two in our Bible, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but we know that there was at least a third and possibly more. But in 1st Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 9, he mentions the fact that he had already written them a letter. And so clearly there was at least that third, which we do not have today. So three letters at least. Um, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and it's very clearly uh, stated by the very first word. You know, some people would try to argue that kind of stuff. But the very first word says Paul, and so Paul is the author of the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, some background on the on the city of Corinth. We've talked about Corinth before. It's a very interesting place. Let me, let me read you some quotes from Charles Ryrie, who has some... Just some good summaries of it. He says the city of Corinth was located on the narrow isthmus between the Aegean and Adriatic seas. Corinth was a port city and wealthy commercial center. Ships wanting to avoid the dangerous trip around the southern trip of Greece were dragged across that isthmus. As I studied this, I'd never noticed that before. I don't remember reading that before that they actually had some sort of a method of dragging ships across the isthmus from one sea to the other. And, of course, that made it a very important place. Uh, for trade. The city boasted an outdoor theater that accommodated 20,000 people. It had athletic games, second only to the Olympics. It had a Greek, Roman, and Oriental population, and it had the great Temple of Aphrodite with its 1,000 prostitutes. Corinth was a city with a lot of problems. Corinth was a city that was a sinful place. It would have been the Las Vegas of its day. It would have been a place whose very name was synonymous with immorality and sin. Charles Raby goes on, he says, The immoral condition of Corinth is vividly seen in the fact that the Greek term, Corinthiadzomai, there's a mouthful for you, Corinthiazomai literally means to act the Corinthian. And that phrase came to mean to practice fornication. In other words, to be a Corinthian or to act the Corinthian was to practice fornication. There were taverns on the south side of the marketplace, and many drinking vessels have been dug up from those liquor lockers. Corinth was noted for everything sinful, and it was to that city that the Apostle Paul came, around 50 AD, on his second missionary journey, preached the gospel to that group of people, to the Corinthians, and some were saved, and a church was born. And it was the church of the uh, church in Corinth that we have now this letter written to them. Turn with me over to Acts, and we'll read the history. Of just exactly how that church came to be. Acts chapter 18. You'll recall this no doubt from when we looked at the book of Acts. But let's just remind ourselves. Acts chapter 18. After these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus. Who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Well, there's the history of the founding of the church of Corinth. Let me summarize it for you. He came to Corinth. He met up with Aquila and Priscilla, with whom he lived and worked, because they were tent makers, just like he was. He preached in the synagogue for a while, but then opposition became so great that he had to move from there, move next door into the house of one named Justice, where he began focusing on the Gentiles as the Jews had largely, largely rejected the gospel. He was there for at least 18 months, people got saved, and a church was born and grew. One of the people saved during that time was the fellow named Sosthenes. We saw him mentioned there in the very last verse that I read to you, and I think he probably is the same Sosthenes that's mentioned here in uh, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. We can't be sure of that, but it probably is the same man. Now, there were a couple of things that occasioned Paul's writing 1 Corinthians. One of them was he had heard some disturbing news. Someone had come to him and said, you know, things aren't going so well in the church at Corinth. This was after he had left. The church was having problems. And so this letter was meant, at least in part, as a corrective to that, as, as, as a means of correcting those problems. He had also received a letter or letters from some other members of the church just asking questions, which is always a nice thing. He probably was pleased about that. They had questions about the faith, questions about various uh, doctrinal issues. And so he was also, in addition to correcting the disturbing news he had heard, he was also uh, answering some questions. And we'll see that as we get into this a little bit further. What were some of the problems? What was the disturbing news that he had heard? Well, one of them was that there were divisions in the church. And we'll see that, we, we stopped reading in verse number 9. If you just read a couple of verses down, you'll see that he gets right into that particular topic, divisions in the church. We have a word for that that's a little bit more known to us, it's cliques. There were cliques in the church. Might have gone a little further than that, but certainly it was at least that. And so as we get into this letter, we're going to see him dealing with that problem. There was also the problem of immorality in the church. Chapters 5 and 6 deal with that To a tremendous degree, and we're going to we're going to see that he had to deal with some serious problems there. There was a lot of confusion about worship: what is right, what is wrong, in how we worship the Lord. Things like what we just did this morning with the Lord's table are dealt with uh, very much in this particular book. And so, and those are just a few. There was problems, disturbing issues that he had to deal with. Now, don't get me wrong; Corinth was a great church. Look at the good things he said about Corinth in verses 4 and following. He said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it was a gifted church. It was a serving church. It was in many ways a great church. But it was also a church that had some problems that needed to be dealt with. I would suggest it had gotten off course. And so Paul had to help them to try to get back on course. And I said that they asked some letters, some questions in letters. What, what questions did they ask? Well, they asked questions about marriage. They asked questions about food offered to idols. And you can imagine in an idolatrous place like Corinth, why they would have questions about that. And in a, in a sensual place like Corinth, why they would have questions about marriage and things like that. They also asked about um, uh, right ways of worship. They, they asked about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is one of the best passages. Matter of fact, I think Brother Phil quoted from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning as he led us in the Lord's table. And so those are just a few of the questions they asked that we'll see as we go through this. So there's a lot in this letter. I think it'll keep us busy for a while. And it ought to help us to stay the course, which is kind of what I'm tentatively titling this series, Stay the Course, because I think that's the primary emphasis. If you're off off track, get back on. And I think as we study 1 Corinthians, we may identify some areas in our lives where we have wandered off track, wandered off course, and where we need to get back on. And if that's not the case, hopefully 1 Corinthians will be a warning to us uh, of those areas where we do need to watch out for that and avoid having it happen in the first place. Well, the first nine verses that we just read are Paul's introductory comments that he makes as he, as he just gets started. And you see this in all of his letters. And as I read through that, I always like to, to try to figure out what he's saying in his introduction. As I read through that, two primary thoughts jumped out at me that I think might be foundational to us if we're going to understand this book. And uh, I would suggest that those two primary thoughts are, number one, our calling, and number two, our Savior. Our Savior. Did you see those two thoughts as we went down through there? Nine verses. And I think those two things just kind of jump out at you. Our calling and our Savior. Think about the first one. Our calling. Did you notice the prevalence of that word or that thought? It's used three different times. Verse number one, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Verse number two, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Verse number 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We see here that Paul was called to be an apostle, believers are called to be saints, and believers are also called into the fellowship of his Son. Think about those three things for a minute. And for no particular reason other than I just choose to. We're going to look at them in the exact opposite order that I just read them. Think about the last one first. Jesus said the first should be last and the last first. Verse number nine says Christians are called into fellowship with Christ. Does that happen to you? I remember when it happened to me. I remember when I was 12 years old. Came to understand that I was a sinner in need of a savior. I sat in one of these pews. Don't remember which one I was sitting in. Probably back there because that seems to be where I remember sitting. Maybe right about where Sandy's sitting now. It's about where I used to sit. But I remember sitting in the pews and hearing the gospel message preached, and knowing, knowing in my heart, without a shadow of a doubt, that it was speaking to me. I remember that. I remember that I knew I was lost, and I knew I needed to be saved. I. I not only heard the preacher preaching, but I heard and felt the Holy Spirit tugging and convicting and convincing and encouraging and calling me to respond. Have you experienced that? If you are saved today, it is because you've had a similar experience. There is no other way. Nobody is saved at birth. Everybody is born lost and everybody needs to be saved. We talk about it all the time. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that none of us are, saved in a, are born in a saved state. We have to come to the place where we recognize we're lost and trust Christ. And here that's referred to as being called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I know what that's going to do in some minds. I know some of you are immediately going to go and get all balled up on the doctrine of election When you hear that phrase called into the fellowship of his son. And I'm not going to I'm not going to deny that that's part of it today. There's no question that he calls no question. But just as Paul said, we're called into the fellowship with Christ in verse number nine. He also pointed out in verse number two. Did you notice he said with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. He talks about both pieces of it here. We're called and we have to call. We see it all throughout the Bible. Acts chapter 2 and verse 21 says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. In the one we read all the time, quote all the time, Romans ten thirteen: Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. you got to have them both. He calls, we call. That's what happened to me. I love the description C.S. Lewis gave of when he trusted Christ. Some of you have perhaps read it. C.S. Lewis, of course, was a British theologian. He's with the Lord now. Uh, wrote a lot of things. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and, and various other other books. And I don't know if we'd agree with absolutely everything that C.S. Lewis had to say, but he was a tremendous thinker and a theologian. And and and, and he, he gives a wonderful discussion about how he came to know the Lord. and And what he says, by way of introduction before the part I'm going to read to you, is that he fought it. He fought it. He didn't want to turn his life over to God. He didn't want to turn his life over to Christ. And so he fought that call on his life. And then he says this, quote, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work the steady, unrelenting approach of him of whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of May twenty second, 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compassion is our liberation. I see both God calling and C.S. Lewis calling there. Do you? I see the call both ways. And when I was 12, I felt the call of God. And when I was 12, I called and asked the Lord to save me. You got to have them both. You got to have them both. And so, Christian, we are called into fellowship with Christ. Into salvation through him, into communion with him, into relationship with him, into family with him. Just as we talked about as we gathered around the Lord's table today. Christians are called into fellowship. There was another call we noticed. It's in verse number two. It says that Christians are called to be saints. Called to be saints. Now there's an interesting word, isn't it? Saint. It's from the Greek word hagiai, which means set apart for God's service. Now, I know there are those, and not in any way being critical, but but Catholics in particular believe that there is a separate class of people to whom this word refers. Individuals so-called because of some higher level of service or or virtue or accomplishment and whom the church has recognized in some way that they are a saint in, uh, in some way that other people are not. But that is not what the Bible teaches. All believers in Jesus Christ are called saints in the Bible. And that's what Paul is talking about here. All believers. Paul used the term often to mean all Christians. And he oftentimes used it in his, his introductory comments in letters. First, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy bond service of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. He was referring to the entire church. All the believers. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 2, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of us are saints. All of us are called to be saints. All of us who are believers. And here's what that means. That means that all of us are called to be set apart for God's service. That's what that means. Now that word goes beyond relationship, does it not? We're called into fellowship with his son. That's the relationship. And here it says we're called to be saints. It goes beyond being placed into the family of God. It says that we are separated from our past lives of sin and separated to our new life in Christ. We'll see more of this as we get into the book. But basically it's talking about what we oftentimes refer to as progressive sanctification. Our becoming more like Jesus every day. Of our life, called to be saints. Now think about what that means. You know, it's popular today, and I hear this all the time, to say that Christianity is very simply a relationship with Christ and nothing more. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations. That's one of the things we like to hear said. It's not a bunch of rules that we have to follow. But see, that doesn't jive with that word. I don't know how you fit that into that word. We're called to be saints. We're called to be set apart from sin and set apart to God. It is true that the call into fellowship with Christ is a call into relationship with him. But the call to be a saint is a call to be holy. It's a call to live like him. It's a call to obey his commandments. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse number 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so we're called into fellowship. We're also called to be saints. Which means we're called to be more and more like him. One last thing. Verse number one, Paul said he was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So called into fellowship, called to be saints. I would suggest this is telling us we're called into ministry. And one of the things we're going to cover in detail when we get to the last part of this book, chapters 11 and following, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. And we have talked about them before, but we'll talk about them more in detail. The fact that each believer, each Christian, each saint is gifted for the purpose of helping Christ's people. In Christ's church. Paul here is emphasizing his gift, which is apostleship. Nowhere are we saying that that gift exists here. Or that that's what he's trying to say. That was his gift. There are no apostles today. We'll talk about that more when we get there. But I do believe we can make the application that just as he is saying that he was called into a specific ministry, so too are we. All of us have a calling to use the gifts that he has given us. And we'll we'll talk about that more as we get there. So just think about these three calls for a minute. Just briefly mention, but just think about them for a minute. There is the call to fellowship, there is the call to be saints, and there is the call to serve. Now this Corinthian church was messed up in a lot of areas. This Corinthian church had all kinds of problems that Paul had heard about and all kinds of questions. And I wonder, as I think about this, if Paul might not have been saying, at least, at least just in a foundational way, That if they would just remember their calling. If they would just concentrate on that. If they would concentrate on their calling. Rejoice in in their call to salvation. Work at their call to sainthood. Focus on their call to service. Think about your calling. It would help them to stay on course. Is that possible? I think it is. I think it is. And so one of the concepts that I think is foundational as we get into 1 Corinthians is that. We are called. We are called. Into fellowship, we are called into sainthood, we are called into service. Have you thought about that on a personal level? Have you thought about the fact that you are called? You are called into the fellowship of his son. You are called to be a saint. You are called to serve. Have you thought about what that means to you? I think our lives would be revolutionized if we really got hold of that. Well, one other foundational truth. Our calling was one. And just just briefly, let me mention our, our Savior. I don't need to spend a lot of time on this. This one's really quite obvious. But, you know, I made a lot, of, a lot out of the fact that the word calling is mentioned three different times in these nine verses. But I want you to look at those nine verses with which we just read there. Uh, did you notice how many times Jesus Christ is mentioned there? Did you notice that? Let's just review. Verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Verse number, uh, well, that's actually mentioned there twice. Uh, uh, With all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I could go through all of them. There's nine verses, nine times. Jesus Christ is mentioned. Could it be that Paul was reminding them of where their focus needed to be? Could it be that Paul was reminding them, you're getting off course here. Your eyes ought to be concentrating on Jesus Christ. Could he have been saying, stay the course and keep your eyes on Jesus? In all the problems, in all the issues, in all the questions that he's going to address in the coming chapters, and there are many, the ultimate answer is always going to be Jesus Christ. Every single time. Keep your eyes on him. Don't concentrate on human leaders. When you get into this discussion of all these different divisions that they had. Based on who liked what leader best. Don't get your eyes on human leaders. Don't get your eyes on cliques in the church. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Immorality is raging in the church. Don't get your eyes on that. Get your eyes on Jesus Christ. I like the way Derek Prime in his book on 1 Corinthians said it. He said it like this. He said the thing for which to watch is the way in which Paul consistently relates every subject and problem to the centrality of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the problems and difficulties of the Corinthian church arose from their losing sight of him and his headship. And the enemy of our souls encourages that same peril today. So how should we, as a church or as individual believers, get back on course if we're off? The Corinthian church was off course a little bit. How do we get back on if we're off? What if we've allowed a critical or divisive spirit to take hold in our heart as they had? How do we get rid of it? And how do we get back a spirit of unity as they needed to? What if immorality has become a problem in one of our lives or or in our church? As it was in the Corinthian church. What if we find ourselves off course and wandering where we ought not? How do we get back? How do we get back? What is the answer if we find ourselves in any of these states? Or if you say, that doesn't apply to me, I'm not there. What is the answer to make sure that it never does happen? How do we guard against it? And I want to suggest that just by way of foundation, as we start out here, the answer is twofold. Focus on our calling and focus on our Savior. Two things, which I think if we'll do, will help us stay the course.